Today's episode of Taking You to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard is brought to you by Manscaped. Manscaped is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Manscaped has now got the Lawnmower 3.0. Yes, Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. The Manscaped engineer team spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball trimmer of all time, and they've just released, like I said, the new and approved Lawnmower 3.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code EMPIRE. Yes, a brand new code. It is EMPIRE. So get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the promo code EMPIRE and head on over to manscaped.com. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. John Paz, and with me as always is the star of the show, former WWE Tag Team Champion, eight-time Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion, as well as one of the greatest trainers in the history of professional wrestling. He is the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing great today, John. What a great evening it is, too. Now, there's always so much going on with you and with the JPWA down there in Knoxville, Tennessee. What's going on in the world of the JPWA? It's been a very, very... uh exciting month it's been a um productive month and um uh, some surprising things happened this month and just recently over the weekend we had uh, we had some visitors and you never know who's going to walk in the doors of JPWA uh this weekend we we got a visit from not one but two very special guest, two very special people. And uh, the first is Knox County Mayor Glenn Jacobs, a.k.a. Kane, a.k.a. Uh, the Jacobs in Jacobs Pritchard Wrestling Academy. Uh, stopped by JPWA for a special session on Saturday, and he was joined by the one, the only, the Undertaker, Mark Calloway, uh, came in with uh, with Glenn and uh, checked out 
JPWA action, and uh, it was a very, very cool experience for everybody that showed up. And um, so we tell everybody at the beginning of class, you never know who's going to walk through the doors, and you should always be ready and prepared. Uh, I think that's what they call luck, is where preparation meets opportunity, and you never know when that opportunity will arise and uh, who you may cross paths with on any given moment in professional wrestling. That is awesome. I mean, talk about a, a random visitor. I mean, we've seen like Sasha and Bailey and Natalia, but the Undertaker stops by. That is very cool. Any specific reason he came by or is it one of those things where he's just going to pop in once, every once and again? Ah, well, there there was a project that was in the works uh, that we can't really talk about right mm-hmm. now, but uh, the fact that he was around with the guys at JPWA speaks volumes for the fact that uh, uh, he's, he's very interested in uh, the future of sports entertainment, professional wrestling, whatever you want to call it. And uh, he took his time and then took that opportunity to check out uh, some of the guys we had, and and it was very very cool. But but uh, we we can't talk about specifically why uh, he was in town. But but the fact is, uh, dropping by made an impression on everybody. So that was that was a very very cool thing. How do the students kind of respond when you get like a surprise visitor like that? Are they shocked? Do they pretend they're not shocked? Do they just act professional? How, I mean, how do they go about it? No, these these are these are young guys, and uh, I, I believe they were they were shocked, but but surprised, obviously, and pleasantly surprised because more than one of them said this was this was the coolest thing ever, and I under, totally agreed with them. Uh, so it was it was very very. Um, as you can imagine, for someone who goes to a wrestling school and, uh, yes, co-owned by Kane, one of the biggest superstars in, in the business, but uh, then they happen to be joined uh, by the phenom and, and the legend, and uh, it's no secret his status and his reputation in in not just WWE, but um, – uh, anywhere you go, it, it, it speaks volume. So these guys are just breaking in in uh, early 20s, and um, when, when they saw him walk through the door, their jaws dropped. And, and it was a it was a it was a great thing to see too, because uh, I'm still a fan of professional wrestling, and I've, I've been in it for a long, long time. Uh, and I still appreciate when someone walks through the door takes time to watch the, the the younger generation, the young guys who are trying to train and, and uh, find find a way to make their name or find a way to make a place for themselves and uh, um, yeah, meet them afterwards and, and, and offer some advice. And uh, it, it's always good to see when, when uh, a, a pro, a guy like The Undertaker, and there's not many like him at all, there is only one Undertaker, uh, walks through the door and, you know, here's your chance to um, here's your chance to be in front of him. Uh, we ran drills. We, we did what uh, uh, what we had to do, and, and it, was a, it was a real good day. 
So they ever give you the heads up of the guys coming in? Like, do you know ahead of time that like Undertaker's coming in and Kane is going to stop by? Well, we knew, we knew, uh, I knew ahead of time, but but uh, I didn't tell those guys just just to see because uh, it's it's like Christmas sometimes, you know you you know it's coming, but uh, you don't always know if Santa's going to leave presents until he does. And Santa definitely brought presents yesterday, and and so while I knew, I didn't uh, tell them. I just said we we're having a training class, and uh, we'll see what happens. So I wasn't uh, I wasn't sure, and I wasn't privy to everything that was that was supposed to happen. But uh, uh, what did was very cool, and and everybody else thought so too. So. It was uh, you. You just never know, and I think that goes with anybody. You, you just never know who's going to walk through the doors. And I tell people all the time, even when you go on the independents, um, you don't know if there's a scout in the crowd. You don't know who knows who in in this business, and uh, someone could be filming your match or just sitting there watching you, and you don't know if. Uh, uh, if they're from talent relations at WWE, you may not recognize the the face because they've never been on TV. But um, or you don't know if they they are a friend of a friend of a friend who knows a guy who wants new guy. You know, I mean, eh, treat everybody with respect and dignity, and and hopefully you get the, the same in return. And um, they'll certainly remember that about you uh, as much as they'll remember what you did inside the ring as well. So, um, yeah, that, that, that could happen anytime, any place, any, yeah, any, anywhere at all. Was he giving advice to the guys? I think, I think a couple of them, but for the most part, he was, he was just cordial and said hello and, uh, took pictures and, um, yeah, it was, was, was the undertaker and he's always been a class act. Yeah, you can tell by watching him on his uh, last ride and and his his attitude and the way he approaches not just his uh, his, I don't want to say retirement because I don't think anyone ever retires, but but he approaches his um, stepping back a a couple feet from from uh, the ring, if you will. And um, still loving the business, so I think just being around that attitude it really, and that energy radiates uh, uh, a lot of positive, um, uh, positive energy in return. I guess so. Uh, I wasn't around when when everybody got a chance to talk to him, but uh, if if anybody asked him a question, I'm sure he gave him the answer. Very cool. I mean, at JPWA, we always talk about who's stopping by, who's doing this, who's doing that. Sometimes WWE will stop by with a film crew, and they'll film something with you. Uh, Sheamus will stop by and film something. I mean, it is kind of just one of those things where it's like, man, if you're not in JPWA, you probably should think about it just because there's so many eyes from WWE in and around JPWA at all times. Well, I, I, I say this all the time again. You, you really never know, and we – really never know who's going to be in town uh doing what and and for whatever occasion for whatever reason um if they if some of the guys have a, a spare time or just have curiosity uh it's it's Glenn Jacobs and and his Dr. Tom 
uh, there, I think they're interested in seeing what we, we have going on. And, and we are both very appreciative, appreciative of uh, the fact that, that they are curious and do want to see what's going on. And we're more than happy to show them. I'm more than happy to invite people to come down and uh, check out our training, see what we do. And, and even if you want to jump in, as Seamus did. Seamus jumped in. Uh, both feet did man in the middle for 42 minutes and uh, was happy to do it. So, um, again, so when someone like The Undertaker walks in and uh, uh, takes a look at, at, at what we got, that's I, I don't see anything but upside to that. So, uh, yeah, it was a very, very good weekend for JPWA. No doubt about that. And, of course, today's episode is brought to you by Manscaped. Check out Manscaped.com because manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. The new water-resistant technology allows you to groom in the shower, which is very cool. Definitely check out the Lawnmower 3.0. Did you know that these guys spent over 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and just released it? I mean, the new and improved 3.0. These guys spent over a year researching, perfecting, doing whatever needed to be done. In fact, doing whatever it takes to become the greatest. Ball trimmer of all time. I, I think we can say that with with no editing or or uh, censoring whatsoever, because facts yes. are facts, and these guys are uh, incredible. Yes. Now get twenty percent off and free shipping with the code Empire at Manscaped.com. Yes, that is twenty percent off with free shipping. Manscaped.com. Use the new promo code Empire. Now, Dr. Tom, today's episode, I wanted to focus in. I know JPWA has so much crazy stuff going on, but I wanted to kind of go back into the territory days. I love doing this and checking out good old Houston Wrestling, the promotion that you know very, very well. Just going to quickly, just for the fans out there that don't know, Houston Wrestling was around from 1920s to about 1987, originally owned by the Siegel family, but it really reached its height of popularity under Paul Bosch, who started in 67 and then sold to Vince and WWF in 1987. Dr. Tom, how did you get into Houston Wrestling? It's funny because I have a uh, picture on the wall at JPWA of uh, of me working in the Houston wrestling office when I was 16, uh, might have been, yeah, 17, 16, 17 years old during the summers. I started when I was 15 uh, during the summers working downtown um, for, for Paul Bosch in his, in his wrestling office. And, and the undertaker was looking at the pictures on the wall and, and we were talking, and he said, now let me ask you this. The, the picture over there, and he points to, to the office, he said, that the address, that was 1919 Caroline, right? I said, yes, 1919 Caroline at the corner of Pierce. And he says, that's right. Paul Bosch would say it every match. He would, he would sell tickets. He would talk about the match. It was promotion, promotion, promotion. His other office was 2022 San Jacinto at the corner of Gray. And Paul would always uh, make sure you had the uh, cross streets. You know, it, was, it wasn't just 2022 San Jacinto. It was 2022 San Jacinto at the corner of Gray and 1919 Caroline 
at the corner of Pierce. So you had your intersecting streets, uh, easy to find and fan friendly, that's for sure. So we moved uh, to Houston from El Paso in 1969, and little did I know that uh, Paul Bosch had, had only recently become sole owner a couple of years before. Uh, but we moved um, <laughs> in the summer of 1969, I guess, or a little before that. Uh, I just remember watching the moon landing in Houston, and we were at this little apartment off Winkler Avenue, and we saw uh, Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. Anyway, uh, we started following Houston wrestling, um, and it was on a UHF channel. You know, El Paso came on about noon or 4 o'clock in the afternoon right after roller derby, and we had uh, uh, the Funks. It was actually shortly a couple months. Obviously, Dory won the uh, – Dory Funk Jr. won the NWA championship. I believe it was February 11th, 1969, and we moved – uh, March, April, probably around April or June of 69. I was heartbroken because... You're a big Gene Kaniski fan? Of, no. Yeah. <laughs> funny funny guy. Yeah. So was, I was heartbroken because uh, the Funks were, were regular in El Paso on Monday night. We watched them, uh, you know, every, every Saturday, West Texas, uh, studio television. You know, they had all the angles, all the episodes, all the guys that we were used to, and and the Funks were our favorite. And uh, Dory just won the title and felt it was like, uh, you know, hometown boy, and he was. Uh, when we moved to Houston, we were introduced to Paul Bosch and Houston Wrestling. And he had uh, guys like Johnny Valentine, Bull Curry, Gary Hart, uh, Wahoo McDaniel, Jose Lothario, Grizzly Smith, the great Malenko. I mean, they had, uh, it was huge stars. And I didn't realize how huge uh, they were until um, we, we, you know, El Paso wrestling was held on a Monday night and Houston wrestling was held on a Friday night. So when we got to Houston, my mom uh, just asked, took Bruce and myself uh, to the matches. a couple times, and then they had what was known as permanent reservations. You can get the same seats every week. And uh, my mom <laughs> met people down there and became friends, and, and we got permanent reservations. started out in the, the cheap seats, general admission, then we worked our way down to ringside getting uh, permanent reservations. And, and Paul had um, – a lady friend named Valerie, who we later married, and she was sitting in one section of ringside seats, and we happened to get permanent reservations in the uh, ringside seats that were right in front of the TV cameras and the interview stand. And the lady told us when we got these seats, she said, all you have to do is turn around and watch the interviews during intermission. So, I mean, that was kind of cool. But my mom also got to talking to a lady in front of us, uh, her and her son, Mike. Uh, The lady's name was Peggy. Happened to be good friends with Paul's lady friend, Valerie. And uh, eventually Valerie moved next to Peggy, and my mom and Peggy and Valerie started talking every week, and Paul would stop by to say hello to Valerie. 
Um, and I would introduce myself to Mr. Bosch at that age and said, I want to be a wrestler. And, uh, he wasn't too receptive. And, uh, uh, I, I, I was trying to write for magazines back then. Norm Keiter and Jim Melby were two guys who, who had the wrestling news magazine and some of the, uh, uh, not not uh, wrestling review or not inside wrestling or pro wrestling illustrator or anything like that. These were kind of uh, more subscription magazines, I guess. And I don't know that they were really too prominent on the newsstand. Maybe they were uh, at one time, but I, I, I remember getting a subscription to them. It was wrestling news. And they sent me a press pass at 12 years old. Um, I was also corresponding with Koichi Yashizawa in Japan. He had pen pals back then. I just, it was a different business. It was, it was a different world. We didn't have the internet, so they had these pen pal addresses in the magazines, and that's how you reached out to people and got programs and results from different parts of the country. And that also helped educate me um, <laughs> on, on to how things worked eventually because – uh, the only way you would know is if you either went to the shows uh, in each town or you had someone in each town sending you the results, uh, which I did in, in a majority of the uh, states. But Jim Melby uh, sent me a press pass, and my brother Ken actually called Paul Bosch's office, and I just got a brand-new Nikon 35-millimeter camera, and uh, I'm ready to be a professional photographer just to get up close and take pictures at ringside it's going to get me my foot in the door kind of like Jim Cornette did Eddie Gilbert did uh, a couple other guys I think did too well, Paul Heyman uh, you know started out taking pictures and writing for magazines and uh, things like that so Ken called Paul Bosch got me uh, an appointment, a meeting with Paul after school one day. And, and as I'm walking home from school, uh, my brother picked me up in the car and said, uh, I got you a meeting with Paul Bosch downtown about taking pictures. And I was scared to death. But I went in there and I had the press pass with me and uh, went in his, in his office at 2022 Sanchez Center at the corner of Gray, the old office, and uh, met Mr. Bosch, showed him the uh, press pass. He pulled out something from his desk, looked at it, and said, okay, well, would you like to start this Friday night? And I said, well, yes, sir. And that Friday night happened to be a number one contenders match between Jack Briscoe and Wahoo McDaniel. And I was nervous, but, boy, when that main event came up, I, I went to Mr. Bosch and said, I'm ready, and he took me down to ringside, told the cops I was okay to take pictures. I took pictures, and uh, they came out. Uh, I think they published published those, and I, I kept taking pictures all the way up until '73, uh, and I was I was 12 in 1972. But up until uh, Briscoe won the title that night, uh, I, I wanted to ask if I could take pictures. I knew it was going to be a big night, but there were a lot of photographers around, a lot of the magazines around, and I didn't want to get in the way. I didn't want to, didn't want to be pushy. And I wish I would have been, but I, but I didn't want to be pushy that night. 
anyway, that led to taking pictures. Uh, I knew Gino Hernandez when he was just coming up. Uh, Gino would be an occasional second at ringside and take the jackets back. And then he started wrestling, and I called Paul Bosch uh, from school one day and said, you know, Mr. Bosch, now that Gino is wrestling, uh, if there ever came a time and an opportunity to be a second or anything, I, I would really like to do that. And he said, okay, I'll keep that in mind. And, and I'm thinking, sure, he will. And it wasn't uh, but maybe three weeks later, about a month, um, when he said, would you like to be a second next week? And I thought, well, holy smoke, yes, I would. I already had the uh, – back back in those days, everybody got their wrestling gear from K&H Wrestling, Carl and Hildegard Wrestling. And I had already had a pair of wrestling boots. I had the K&H shirt with pro wrestling on the back. I mean, man, I was ready. Uh, so yeah, I, I got to be a second and, and eventually, and I didn't go all the way back in the dressing room. I was, you know, kept my distance and, uh, respected my boundaries because back then, not just anybody was allowed back, not just anybody was allowed in. And, um, you know, it, it took off from there and one thing led to another, uh, when I think it was, uh, 75 or 76, uh, when I just had my learner's permit and, and Paul was moving offices uh, from 2022 Center at Gray to 1919 Caroline. And um, uh, he, he I, I, again, thanks to my brother Ken, I'd got a job selling shoes at Montgomery Wards and had been working there two weeks. And, oh, my God, I, I, I could feel Al Bundy's pain. Hmm. And... Uh, you know, because it's, it's terrible. It was horrible. Not what I wanted to do, especially, you know, it was just not a good gig. And and I was down there one week at the office picking up our tickets, telling the ladies, so I got to know Denise and, uh, oh, Miss Lee, her, her, Denise and, and Miss Lee, and about this horrible job I had selling shoes. And Paul, this was all about timing, walked out of his office and was hearing me to say these, tell these stories. And he says, oh, my God, you'll have stories to tell for the rest of your life thanks to that job. And he, then he said, well, how would you like to work here? Now, I, I, again, I had to pinch myself to, to understand if that's what I heard. You know, would you, how would you like to work in this office? Yeah, 75 bucks a week to work in uh, the Houston wrestling office. And I would have paid him. Uh, to work to work there, and and it was a great opportunity during the summer. Um, my God, I mowed the grass outside the the office, uh, ran errands for Paul, sold tickets. Uh, at that time too, I had become Paul's assistant at ringside. Would sit with him. Uh, some of the old matches during the seventies, you can see me sitting right next to Paul, uh, and and and. Do, doing what needed to be done as as his assistant. So it was it was um, looking back on it, uh, I I had a lot of drive back then. I had a lot of passion. I had a lot of uh, uh, focus and narrow mindedness about the business that I was bound and determined. Even though everyone told me I was too small, you'll never make it, and discouraged me to hell. Um, I, I, I refused. I wasn't going to 
do anything else. And my goal was to wrestle in the Sam Houston Coliseum. I never in a million years thought I would wrestle in Madison Square Garden. Uh, but um, I, <laughs> if, if I wrestled in Texas, um, I'd accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. I got in the business. I was, I was a wrestler. And, and over the years, uh, I, I've exceeded anything I ever expected to do. And uh, they, it was all thanks to Houston Wrestling and Paul Bosch. It really, really was. And Bruce uh, will tell you the same thing in, in regards to his career. Bruce was more focused on business that he needed to be focused on. Uh, I was not interested in the office, you know, working out with Mark Lewin uh, at, at the gym while working in, in the office during the day. And Mark Lewin, you know, as American Dream said one time, he, he was, uh, yeah, I had bad mentors, but back then I thought it was a great mentor. It was, um, I wasn't looking for any, anything but a way to get in and wrestle. That's all I wanted to do. And, uh, I, I got to, to meet people through Paul. I got to work out with people through Paul and, uh, at that time, man, Houston wrestling had some of the greatest wrestlers, some of the greatest workers, uh, come through. And I, I had no idea. I had, I had an idea there was a huge impact but I had no idea on the impact uh, Paul really had at that time and the stroke um, in having just one town. He didn't have a territory. He didn't have towns, plural. He had Houston. That was it. And guys could make uh, a lot of money in Houston. And uh, I was just, my goal was just to get in and, uh, kind of like getting in the mafia, man. I was, I was ready to pay whatever price I had to pay. And, um, and I'm proud to say I did. And I'm proud to say, uh, it was, it was the way it was back then because not just anybody was allowed in and, and you had to earn your spot. You had to earn your way. We've talked about through the weeks, the different promoters, how they are, you know, some are, a little weird in some aspects. Some might be a little cheap. What's kind of the overall impression of Paul Bosch? How was he as a promoter and an owner? Well, anyone, I think anyone you talk to, and I don't know if, well, no, I do know. There's not many left uh, of the guys who worked for Paul Bosch, the prime, in the prime of Houston wrestling, uh, who will say Paul was not, there's no one who will say Paul wasn't probably one of the best, along with Sam Munchnik uh, and Vince McMahon, payoffs, uh, payoff men ever in the business. Um, you know, he, he looking back on it, uh, knowing what I know now, uh, but being, um, again, <laughs> focused and, and cited on what I wanted to do, Paul had an ego, and, and people would say that about it. You know, Paul, but but Paul had a right to have an ego, and, and you had to have an ego and and confidence if you're going to run a town like Houston and deal with the people he dealt with. Uh, in, in Gary Hart's book, Gary talks about 
Paul and having problems with Paul. But but once again, um, you know, Paul made Gary a lot of money. He made a lot of people a lot of money, and uh, and Paul made a lot of money over the years. He he was a he was a great man. He did some very very great things. Um, but I, I have heard from from not just one or two people, but a couple that that Paul could be egotistical. No doubt, no doubt he could. But uh, he earned that right. He 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 did a damn good job and. And he was proud of it, and he was proud of what he did uh, in wrestling. He was proud of what he did in the service, and and he he, he let you know about it. And if you read his book, Hey Boy, How'd you, Where'd You Get Them Ears? Uh, he 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 could come across maybe as boastful and braggadocious, and he talks about it in the book. So maybe I'm uh, sounding not too uh, 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 shy or whatever he said he says something in the book or he, he addresses it and he says no i'm not it's, i'm proud of what i did and uh he any any and he was a good man he he was a good man to everyone he, i think who who worked for him he paid well and uh i i truly believe he took pride in in what he did um so and, and everybody on that card Houston wrestling uh was built on on the guys like Johnny Valentine, Wahoo McDaniel, the great Malenko, and uh, uh, Jose Lothario. I mean, and again, it was such a different culture um, in in the country as well as the business. And uh, wrestling was, you know, you, by the time the main event got to the ring, the the smoke from from cigarettes have. have had a cloud around the ring lights and and had that ambiance to it and all of a sudden you had uh, Wahoo and Valentine and you know 15 20 minutes into the match you know, somebody was going to get busted open with bright red blood uh, dripping down the face and you see the sweat fly when the chops and 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 the forearms and uh fist during the match and and it the, the main event was was certainly different than the rest of the card back then. It was, you know, you had some good matches to lead up to uh, the main event, and the main event, and usually the semifinal, went two out of three falls, and um, and and those guys were in the main event for a reason because they were believable and they convinced um, not they they convinced the fans that what they were doing in the ring was, uh, uh, was pretty authentic. And, uh, that was, that was why those guys carried the load. And once again, I don't want to romanticize, uh, the past so, so much as it sounds like at the same time, it, it deserves some recognition for the fact that these guys went out, and worked as hard as they did uh, because it was, I think it had to do with the pride and the work ethic back then too. So, and Paul Bosch demanded that. And, and those guys went out and worked hard because Paul paid and he paid more than fair. A lot of times and you looked around the house and tickets, I think ringside was like $5 or six, $6 maybe. And, of course, it uh, stayed with the times as, as it progressed. But 
if you were in the main event, uh, you you were going to be making really good money. So, um, to answer your question, Paul Bosch, I, I think you'll find the consensus is that he was a good man. He was a great payoff man. Uh, could tell some great stories, funny stories. He enjoyed what he did. He had passion for what he did. Um, and it was a lot of fun for him. And, and, you know, as the years went by and, and, and life was changing, things were changing, the business was changing, I think he lost a lot of that passion and a lot of the fun and excitement uh, was, was leaving the game and, and, and was pretty much moving in another direction. And I don't know that uh, he always appreciated that. Because he he knew what worked. He was a great promoter, I thought, and he always he was the one who said, you know, I like to go fishing, and I also like strawberries. But when I go fishing, I put worms on the hook because I'm trying to catch fish. I, I'm I'm trying to draw fans. I'm going to give the fans what they want. You know, just because I might like scientific wrestling doesn't mean I'm going to put that in the main event. Because if if I do. Uh, and nobody likes that, nobody's going to come. And the object of a, of a great promoter and great matchmaker is to find out, have an instinct, what is going to make fans come out and watch your product. And I thought Paul was, was pretty damn good at what he did when it came to that. So he loved gimmicks. He loved uh, uh, the entertainment part of, of wrestling, no doubt. Uh, but he also appreciated when guys went out and treated it, you know, looked thought shoot, but they went out and worked, and they and they gave a lot of unpredictability and authenticity, uh, and yes, realism to their cards, uh, to their matches, and on the card. So uh, it was Houston was a special town, and anybody that worked it, uh, especially top guys, will tell you the same thing. Man, you're right. I mean, so many great guys kind of came through that territory. When you end up actually officially wrestling there, I guess it was probably January of 1980, somewhere around then, who was kind of booking the territory at that point? Gary Hart. Gary Hart was a booker, and um, that's that's how uh, uh, I, I got booked in L.A. You know, I was um, – I, I had – Already been working. I had my first match in October of '79, and uh, was working around, oh gosh, Texas and uh, Dallas, some Louisiana, some Arkansas, Arkansas, and Mississippi. And uh, then I, Paul, had got me booked in Portland for Don Owen, and the night that. Uh, we had the Battle Royal, I think, uh, gosh, was it, yeah, I think it was in that I had, we, we did the Battle Royal with Andre, or, or maybe a little before that, he told, Gary Hart came to me and said, hey, uh, I've got you booked in Los Angeles, and I said, Gary, I'm supposed to go to Portland, he says, well, you go to LA first, and I said, okay, um, is somebody going to let Don Owen know, and said, yeah, I'll let him know, well, he never did. So I just went to L.A., and then Chavo Guerrero was a booker in L.A., Chavo Sr., and uh, they they needed talent. They needed bodies, I guess, and, and I was young and new, and uh, 
so I'd wrestled there a week, and I said, uh, Chavo, I'm supposed to go to Portland next week. He said, no, 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 you're going to stay here. I said, okay. And I just assumed he would call and tell Don Owen, and he never did. So, uh, but Gary Hart was booking, and that's how – uh, that's how it kind of worked out at first for me. And I, and I always liked Gary. I mean, I, even, even when I was Paul's assistant and, and, and just being around, I used to take Gary to the airport too. And I liked Gary. Gary was, Gary was laid back and cool. And, um, I never had any problems with him. You know, I had a feeling he was, uh, independent, you know, and was going to do what he was going to do no matter what. But, um, you know, I, 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 I never had any problem with Gary Hart. So really, I guess your debut for Houston wrestling would be January 1980 against Les Thornton. Do you remember this? And, and is that the official debut? Hell yes, I remember that and for a couple reasons. Because I had wrestled Les, uh, I think, in Dallas and Fort Worth. And one time in particular in Fort Worth, though, but prior to working with him in Houston, my hometown, um, I did something in the ring <laughs> and, uh, I came back dressing room and Lester snatched me and, and was trying to tell me about when I, when I either grabbed the arm or locked up, but he snatched me, you know, like, like he was impatient and angry, which, which I understood later on because, you know, I'm trying to tell us guys the same thing. You know, it's, it's, it's really easy once you know what you're doing, but I had no idea what I was doing, even though I had watched my whole life. I, and I, and I've been turning and, and new, and I'd been in, been in the ring a little bit. I'm green, man. And I'm nervous. And it's, it's, it, it, it wasn't, you know, that's why a lot of people don't, don't understand. You can watch this your whole life. Think you got it down. It ain't what you think it is. And, and it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of time takes takes years to to, and even then, you don't always get it down. But in Houston, um, after he had already I'd already done jobs for him in other cities. Now it's my hometown, first match of the night, and uh, we have to go 15 minutes Broadway, 15 minutes through, and. I can tell Les isn't real happy about it because he he's already worked with me. I'm green as hell, and Les has a uh, a very thick English accent. And he asked me during this match, which I don't remember him asking me in any other match. He says, uh, "I have an armbar," and he said, "Can you call?" Uh, what? Can you call? Uh, uh, yeah. I didn't understand a word he said. He shot me off. And I run right into him. He doesn't take a bump, but he nails me. And then he takes over and he says, "God damn it, I said, can you go?" I said, "I can't understand." He says, "Ah, oh, shit." So a little frustrated. And as we go down to the wire, here we go. And they count down five minutes left: four, three, two. At two minutes, Paul comes down to ringside and sits on the steps, and he starts cheering me on because I have been his assistant all these years and people have seen me sit by him all these years and they know, and the people around ringside know, and, and, and some of the ladies around ringside had a fan club for me called rocket to the top. Back then you had fan clubs, man. 
And oh my God! So here we go, and Paul gets everybody started going, and we, and of course, Les takes me through the, the the Broadway series of you know I almost got him, he kicks out. I get him, he kicks out. He, he gets me, I kick out. And we go back and forth, back and forth, all the way to five, four, three, and I've got him pinned, and right at one, he kicks out. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. he was good in that respect, and uh, I remember that, and I was so nervous and so blown up, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, but once I did that, it was like, man, uh, you know, Gino did it, uh, but I knew Gino was a different cat. He was a different breed, man, and I was just happy to uh, be in there. <laughs> you know, you got to start somewhere. You got to break the ice, you know, some sometime. And I, they, I got my cherry broke that night in Houston. Even though I had wrestled before. You know, that night when I wrestled in Houston, um, that was that was where I said, wow, thank God. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, Paul wrote an article in the Southwest uh, Championship Wrestling Magazine for San Antonio. They had a little, little fanzine out, and Paul wrote uh, how he was wrong, and he he. Didn't think uh, I was going to make it, but I proved him wrong. And he was—he, he, it was a really nice article, um, and uh, you know, I always appreciated that because I do. I remember he was never encouraging, never once, uh, even even led on that I could even have a chance. And you know, once once he once I did, and it was like, um, yeah, it was it was satisfying. It was it was good. I had fire as a baby face, and um, <sighs> I had I had uh, I had something that um, uh, you know you have when when you start and when you really want something that bad. And I, I know what it's like to to be turned down and told no, 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 and 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 all of a sudden uh, it wasn't all of a sudden. By the way, it, there's no such thing as an overnight success, and and even though you. Even though it broke through here, I, I knew I had to leave and go learn somewhere else before I could come back. And it was many, many years later, and and some of us it takes longer, you know, to to learn than others. But but I do remember that first night, and, I, and I'll I'll always remember that first night because it was so cool. Uh, finally, you know, you you go from sitting in the general admission seats to sitting ringside to. To trying to get a picture of Wahoo and Valentine. The other thing, you know, once I left and came back, I, I worked in town for Johnny Valentine, Larry Lane and me. And Larry was a, a rugged guy, He and he would lay it in. And he told me to hit him back the same way, and we did. We had a hell of a match. And Valentine came back and says, hell of a match, guys. I thought, you know, here it is. <laughs> you know, all these all these times. And 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 you're living that way, you know. And and I under, that's why I understand when young guys get in, and I understand when you want to do so good and you're so nervous. The the pressure, uh, you don't think it's pressure. You don't know it's pressure. You, you're not sure what it is, but um, you, you prove that you can you can do it and get over it and uh, conquer your fears and have that confidence. So. Um, that one match in Houston, I think, is the one that really finally said, "Okay, now you're in." 
So do the boys in the back say anything like, oh, this is Paul's boy, you know, he's out of ringside here and you're his old assistant. Anybody kind of, you know, maybe ribbing you or getting on yeah. to say anything to you about it? Sure, sure. Tiger Conway, uh, Jose Lothario, especially the night we were in the Battle Royal. Now, uh, Jose and Tiger were, were, were getting me in the dressing room, so, oh, boy, and rubbing their hands together, so your chest is going to be ours tonight, man, and just laughing and being an asshole, but, I mean, ribbon, mm-hmm. it was what mm-hmm. it is, and they did. I mean, they all got me, and, and it's to be expected, but, uh, yeah, because all the guys had known and seen because, <laughs> you know, when you're going to a town every week, and you see the guys who are around ringside, you see the guys who are doing stuff, and and sometimes, you know, they'd give you your jacket or you'd be sitting with Paul or Paul would say, go back and tell Jose to come out to the rink or something like that. So they knew. And now all of a sudden you're in the dressing room getting dressed and suited up in the boots. And it's like every green guy back then, uh, you know, they've been seeing, seeing you get around the matches, hanging out. And now who do you know? How'd you get in? Because it was a, a click back then. It's always been a click, man. It's always been one of those things that you have to, know somebody who knows somebody to get in and and uh <laughs> you know i did it the old-fashioned way i guess i uh, went down and talked to paul and he wouldn't wasn't going to smarten me up uh you can't make a kid you're too small and you know try to try to turn me in another direction but as he said you know it's like trying to uh, you know, watch a tree grow and, and you're trying to bend the roots this way when I'm going the other way. And, and uh, back then my will was a lot stronger and then I, uh, you know, knew it. And, and I knew that the guys weren't just going to say, oh, hey, man, come on in. Great. No, because I was a smaller guy and they're going to show me that, hey, this isn't as easy as you think it is. And I never thought it was easy. I was ready to pay dues. I mean, I expected it. But I wasn't going to quit. You, you, you were going to have to kill me because I was not going to quit, no matter how hard it got, no matter how much Jose Lothario wanted to give me shit or Tiger, you know, who became a good friend of mine later on. Uh, I wasn't going to quit. So yeah, but that was all part of it. Now, a guy I don't know if we've ever mentioned him on the show before. I know we've talked about Andre before. I know we've kind of mentioned uh, that Battle Royal. Obviously, Andre was the king of the Battle Royal, and he'd win it. But another guy that you wrestled here, Tully Blanchard, future legend. I mean, this is not like 1981, so he'd be a future legend after that. But what were your thoughts on Tully? Well, um, I I really wasn't sure about Tully. And uh, because he and Gino had had been a team, and uh, he, um, uh, he and Gino both were 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 pretty much uh, what you saw on TV is how they were hmm. backstage. It was it, there there wasn't a whole lot of separation. But Tully, uh, to his credit, and, and 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 I respect him for this. He wanted to have a good match, and I I asked him. You know, I just come back from California, and I saw Chris Adams do this uh, roundhouse kick, and you know, you catch the foot, and I and the enziguri, but I had never seen it, and I, I said I'm going to take that back to Texas. Well, I asked Tully if we could do it, and he looked at me because I hadn't done it. I'd just come back from L.A., I guess. And 
oh, I think it was a substitute, as a matter of fact, because I cut a promo before the match. And anyway, and it, but back, I asked him, I said, I, I want to try this move. And I'm, I'm going to kick you with my left, you grab it, and I'm going to come up and hit you with my right. And he looked at me and says, are you sure about this? And I said, man, please, I, I won't kill you, I promise. And he said, okay. So he went ahead and he took that kick. And, and it got a hell of a pop because nobody had seen it in Texas before. So it was good, and 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 it was a good match, I thought. And Tully, uh, years later, on a side note, uh, I was supposed to work with Tully in, at a convention, uh, I think for Sal Corrente. And my neck was just screwed, and I was not, it wasn't in, in, in a place to have a match. Tully had been training for the match. And Tully told me when we got there, he says, man, I was really looking forward to working with you. So I wanted to have you kick me with that kick that we did in Houston. So he remembered it from years ago. And uh, I worked with Tully in St. Louis, too. So, and, and, and last year, did a seminar with him in San Antonio. And he'll, he'll remind me of that match in Houston. He'll remind me of working with a fiery babyface, as a fiery babyface. So, you know, I, I got to give Tully credit because he's been through a lot as everybody else uh, has in this business, and karma gets everybody. And I think Tully um, understands that he wasn't the best um, or always the the most popular guy in the locker room. A lot of guys didn't like Tully. And, again, it's because the the lines were blurred and you didn't know where, you know, the gimmick uh, started or ended with Tully. And, And... Going out to the bars on occasion, he would he would let his mouth override his ass and and uh, good gosh, man, I you know again hindsight looking back on things, uh, he was he was Joe Blanchard's son. He he was uh, you know he had a I don't know if he tore his pec or tore his shoulder or something in college. You know he was a, he was a star quarterback and and then all of a sudden he gets hurt and that goes by the wayside now. Uh, he has all this pressure to live up to Joe's reputation in Texas or or in the business, and that's that's a you know I can only imagine uh, second, third, fourth generation guys don't always have it so easy. Everybody thinks they have it handed down and a silver spoon in their mouth. It's not 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 always the case, and um, I can only imagine some of the. Uh, real trials and tribulations that Tully went through. I went, I witnessed a lot of it when I was in San Antonio. But um, uh, you know, he had he had confidence and he had a, a great belief system in himself. So you know, he, he accomplished. He, he did. A, he he accomplished a lot for himself in this business, and and I respect him for that. So uh, at the time, it was different, but. Again, looking back, he did what he needed to do. I feel like Houston at this point had some good young talent. Besides all those legends kind of coming in and out, also had like some good young talent like Terry Allen, a.k.a. Magnum T.A. is there. Uh, maybe uh, a lot of people may disagree, but Eddie Mansfield at this point, uh, Scott right. Casey. I mean, there's, there's there's some good young talent for sure at this point in um, in Houston. Yeah, uh, no doubt. Terry was there, and and we hooked up. Uh, we, we tagged a couple times in 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 Houston and San Antonio. Uh, at this time, uh, Buck Robley, I believe, was booking. So 
Uh, and Mansfield, too. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, Mansfield actually could work. And, you know, he, he, he was another guy that, that the, the lines uh, blurred sometimes. But once again, he was authentic. Uh, he was that guy. And those those are the the ones who uh, you know make 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 the things move and shake and uh, get people talking. So you had people like that back then who um, you know were, were the wild and crazy uh, cowboys and uh, shoot 'em up, bang up style. Texas was known for that that area especially if you. Uh, came in the territory, uh, you, you just knew. I think pretty much it was un, it was an unwritten, uh, unsaid rule that you knew, uh, uh, yes, think, shoot, but work, but, but it's going to be solid work, and you better lay it in because uh, that's, what, that's what was expected on that, in that part of the territory. He also had some good veterans, like guys like Dick Slater, you know, mixed in as well. You like working with old Dickie Slater? I actually did because, uh, you know, I, I, I've always had uh, a, a penchant for uh, the guys who, who, how can I say this, might have had a screw loose maybe, and Slater – uh, maybe at that time Slater had taken over the book because Dickey, it, it kind of changed Dickey at, at one time. And I worked with him when he was uh booker as well down there. So, um, Slater, I, I got to know a little bit outside the ring and, um, he, he had, he was, he was one of those guys that you knew could be dangerous, and he had that dangerous energy about him. Uh, but he also had a a charm about him, and and he knew how to talk to you. He knew how to get what he needed out of you, and that wasn't not just me, but but anybody in the territory. And that, I think that was the talent of of a booker and someone who knew how to talk to his team, talk to his crew. And uh, get get out of them what they needed. And I worked with Dickie in, in Houston, and he, uh, he 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 took care of me, and he didn't have to, and he knew he was teaching. When I got back to the back, he says, "You're like a nervous old whore out there," because I was nervous as hell, <laughs> uh, and I was moving, <laughs> and and he and he did he he did you know he's a little frustrated, but he didn't beat me up, which which thank God. But he knew I was green, he knew I was nervous, I knew it was Houston. And uh, you know, so, but yeah, Slater Slater was uh, always a first class guy to me, and and uh, talented as hell. There's a battle royal. I don't know if you're going to remember this from 1982. There's such huge names in it. Brody, like I mentioned, Dick Slater, but Brody's in it. Dory Funk Jr., Dusty, Gino Hernandez, Killer Tim Brooks, Manny Fernandez, obviously Tully, Superstar Billy Graham, the Grappler. I mean. Man, Houston was loaded at this point. Houston, yeah, Houston was was loaded uh, on a regular basis from the time uh, we got there in '69 that I remember. Uh, from the time I left, and um, it wasn't until later on, I believe, in in the '80s, when uh, the business 
was was changing on all fronts that uh, I think Paul got disgusted, disheartened, and disgruntled, whatever you want to call it, with uh, Buck Robley as a booker and having substitutions. I think he had like seven substitutions one night in Houston, which was unacceptable if he had one substitution. Paul prided himself on making sure he delivered on the cards and he advertised. And, and was that a when, WWF thing? Or? Nope. No, 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 no. This was uh, when he was working with Southwest. This, this oh, was okay. one of the, yeah. This was one of the things that prompted Paul to return a call from Bill Watts when he worked with uh, Mid South because mm-hmm. I think he was having trouble. It was either Buck or uh, Tully, but but I'm I'm more inclined to think it was Buck who's booking Southwest, and uh, because Paul had switched from uh, Dallas to the San Antonio booking office, and and uh, he was a little uh, displeased uh, with the San Antonio booking office, and uh, Watts had sent word or, or was, was curious and let it know that, uh, let someone know that, that he was interested in uh, uh, maybe having a joint venture with Paul because he was just, Bill was in Louisiana and, um, and, you know, everybody talked back then. Everybody knew what, what the towns were doing and what was going on. It was it was the network back then. So uh, that I think that was what prompted Paul to start working with Bill Watts and uh, Mid-South. So, yeah, it, it was it, – Paul Houston was always a great town, and, and it had to do with Paul Bosch. Paul was a local celebrity in a huge, huge town. And he was a community leader. He he did a lot of things for uh, the boys and girls clubs. He did a lot of things for everybody around that community. So he was um, well known and well respected. And of course, you know you get Nick Bockwinkle, the eleven AWA title match down there. You get Dusty popping in and out, like you mentioned, uh, Bill Watts. He'll send in uh, you know, the Rat Pack. He'll defend the tag titles. Uh, born DiBiase, you got Duggan coming in. I mean, he definitely had a, a lot of talent coming in and out of there. Very cool, though. I mean, like, it's very different. Like, you'll always see Bruiser Brody coming in and out. Like, just a great, great territory. It was a it was a unique setup in that uh, it was just one town uh, that Paul Wash promoted. Just like Sam Muchnick had St. Louis, Paul had uh, Houston as his sole town and uh, you know every uh, m- most guys had a had a booking office that ran the towns and might have a local promoter but that that local promoter ran two or three towns and uh uh so you might go weekly you might go bi-weekly places but um Nick Bockwinkle somewhere somehow in there also uh, became partners with Paul and um so it created another avenue, and Nick uh, could also come in as the AWA champion. You know, he owned part of the town. So it it really was at one time, um, and the whole business was at one time, uh, a, a place where you, you could make a living and, uh, you know, stay afloat. Uh, and go to someplace else. Go go to another territory if one place wasn't working, or you'd been there too long. And, and 
else. And, and if it clicked, it clicked. Everybody would hear about it and know about it, or or they would scout you. And as a young guy, uh, you know, let it be known who's out there. And, and and the guys, even though they gave the impression they weren't working together, the promoters like uh, Vince uh, McMahon, Vern Gagne, um, Sam Mushnick, they were all talking on a regular basis because it was beneficial to everyone to keep fresh talent and and to groom talent and be able to exchange talent and and it was a, a healthy uh, way to make a living for everyone so um i don't necessarily mean to romanticize but at the same time there's a few things to romanticize it was uh going out and telling a story in in the most authentic working shoot way and you had blood and guts when people weren't worried about how barbaric that was and how crass it was because a lot of times it was barbaric and it was crass uh have we evolved as a society huh Let's judge that, huh? <laughs> I mean, let's look at let's look at the world we live in today, and tell me if all that right. uh, let's sanitize uh, professional wrestling, it'll make the world a better place. I beg to differ. So you know, um, but it was guys like Paul Bosch. It, it was guys like the Funks. It, it was guys like Vince McMahon Sr., Vern Gagne, um, and even yes, Roy Shire. I'll say Roy Shire because. Uh, I'm reading a book about Northern California wrestling, and and those guys were the pioneers, uh, in my opinion, of the heyday of wrestling. And while it wasn't all great, I emphasize it was not all great, but the majority of it was certainly um, different than it is today. In a lot of respects, than it is today, because uh, not. <laughs> I, I just see it differently because the guys approached it from a different angle. They approached it with a different premise. They they approached it as um, no matter if 50% or maybe even more of the audience knew it was a work, they got into it, they screamed, they yelled, they had a great time. There was none of this, you, this is awesome, clap, 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 clap. No, they were getting into the match because they were getting into the match, because there were unpredictable things happening. There was excitement happening, and it was all, it was organic, and it, and it, and it kind of uh, fed throughout the arena, and it, and it, and it translated into action and, and passion. And uh, um, the details that went into angles back then were, were just a lot more thought out, I think. So you really spent nine, uh, parts of 1980, 81, 82, 83, and then 85 in Houston, kind of in and out, obviously going through many different territories. Last match that I see, you can tell me if I'm correct or not, the summer of 1985, July of 85, you and Dirty Dutch, great tag team, you and Dirty Dutch, lose to the uh, Fantastics. Is that kind of your last memory or the last match you had in Houston? Um, gosh, it, it very well could be, but I, uh, I don't recall that match. I mean, it could, it could be, um, but I don't, I don't recall. I really, really don't. And I wish I did because it's, it sounds like a good match. It's funny yeah. because we just yeah. watched, I just watched a match with Dutch and I, Dutch and me, 
against uh, Mark Reagan and um, somebody else. And at the end, uh, this is right when I turned heel, at the Irish McNeil Boys Club in Shreveport, and we beat Reagan, I think. And And Frankie Lane, maybe? Maybe, yes. Maybe it's Frankie Lane. And uh, Dutch takes a whip, and we whip Mark Reagan, and Snowman comes in and makes a save. So it it could be. I could have had a match with Dutch in in, uh, uh, Houston against the Fantastics, but I don't don't recall the match, right? I really don't. So really – if you think about it, 1987, Vince McMahon comes in and buys Houston territory. Do you have any thoughts on, on that at all? Just because I know you, you you basically grew up in Houston wrestling. You were Paul's assistant, and he decides to retire. Vince, you know, does his quote unquote retirement show, which was which 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 was a big deal. But it was kind of almost like he was forced out by Vince. What did, <laughs> what did you kind of think about all that? And and were you kind of not upset, but did did it? I don't know. Did it irk you a little bit that he was retiring? Well, no. Really, it didn't. Bruce had been working in the office uh, ever since I went on the road. And um, we we, we could see uh, – there were some people who could see. Not not everybody had this outlook. But uh, we we, we could see a trend happening, obviously, when – uh, Vince Senior died, and and the scuttlebutt was uh, Vince Junior was now in charge, and various places were um, being taken over, and guys were leaving. They were being raided. Um, you know, they took Hogan from from Vern and David Schultz, Gene Okerlund, and, and then the word got around that. Uh, uh, Vince was going to run this big show, call it WrestleMania. And um, so I don't know that I, I certainly didn't have the feeling of uh, I wasn't upset because Paul had been doing it a long time. And, and everyone in the business could see it was changing. It was becoming uh, say your vitamins, take your prayers, and and all that stuff. And prior to that, it was more I'm going to kick your ass and let's take you to the rings type stuff. He was saying the same thing, just using different words. Hogan was now going to become this cartoon hero, uh, and it was going to be marketed that way in New York. And and I, I don't know that everyone believed it was going to succeed, obviously, but uh, that was what drove Vince. And when Paul uh, was getting older and things weren't happening as as he thought they should, you know, he had a rift with Watson Mid-South and then went with Crockett, um, I think that was after WWE, but I mean the the Mid South thing happened, and and then as Vince was taking over the world, uh, figured why not? And Bruce had been talking to Vince while working for Paul, so you know I I kind of I think and again I saw the writing on the wall, but so did so did a lot of people, and Houston was just 
uh, you know, it was, a, it was a huge city with the ninth city in the, in the U.S. or some ninth largest city in the U.S., I think, or, or whatever it was, in top ten, certainly. And, and what a what a great city to have your your TV in and be able to run in because, you know, everyone knew what the numbers were in Houston, and they were pretty damn good numbers. So it was only natural uh, to, to want to make a deal with Vince. And and then, you know, that going into what happened there is a whole different story, a long story. But but uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't upset. I, I was sad maybe because of nostalgia and and uh, you know they brought me in for the last show and, and it was a sentimental uh, match and 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 gosh you know <laughs> I understood. I mean I did at that time I understood and. Um, uh, it was inevitable, and, and for those who say, "No, you know, you could have hung out, hung on if we did this." Well, no, there was no this, and and there was no that. It was this is what it is, and uh, you're not going to, especially back then when Vince was really uh, single-minded on taking over and doing what he did. There was no stopping him. So I think Paul did the right thing at the time. And, um, you know, afterwards, what they wanted him to do was, again, it's a long story. So, Yes, we kind of briefly talked a little bit before about that show um, in, in a prior episode. But really, I mean, it's just kind of great to go down memory lane and talk about Houston. I feel like Houston is going to be a topic we could probably pick up again, too. There's so much history with you and Houston wrestling. There really is, and, and there's 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 a lot of cool things that that, that happened back in those days, and, and uh, uh, that, that you can never do again because it, 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 the the world just as it was back then does not exist, and and you know some things are good about that, and some things aren't. But um, bottom line is Houston wrestling was an institution. Houston wrestling was, um, uh, looking back on it was, was cool. And, and there were times during the city when, um, Paul would get a, a, a newspaper article about him or, or a parade magazine picture on the cover, you know, something like that. So yeah, there, there were a lot of instances in Houston that, uh, uh, was was defining of the times, to say the least. Now, I also want to mention this. That is your book, a complete one-year training curriculum and guide for beginners and seasoned pros, a pro wrestling curriculum, advice, suggestions, and stories to help the aspiring pro get to the next level. Dr. Tom, tell everybody where they can get your awesome book. The book is available on Amazon.com. Just type in Dr. Tom Pritchard's book. It'll come up. And if you would like a personally autographed book, you can send $25 along with the name and address you make it out to, uh, to PayPal. And my PayPal address is Dr. Tom Pritchard at AOL.com. So, um, yeah, if either Amazon or personally signed autograph picture or book on PayPal.com. 
course, also ProWrestlingTees.com. You can go pick up a JPWA shirt or a Dr. Tom. That is ProWrestlingTees.com. A Patreon page has also been set up for the JPWA. You can support them that way. You can check out their website, JPWrestlingAcademy.com. You never know what's going to go on and what's going to happen in the JPWA. And you got something big coming up in August, too. So, as a matter of fact, we do. Les Thatcher and I uh, are doing a two-day camp August 8th and 9th. But you know what, John? We are completely sold out. No more spots are available. We've told people, uh, get get it soon, get it early, because uh, we, we are limiting the spots. And uh, earlier last week, we, we pretty much... Uh, fill every spot we have. We don't have, uh, we will have another camp coming up. We just don't have another date yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to August 8th and 9th of less. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can follow Dr. Tom at Dr. Tom Pritchard. Also, just want to mention one last time that if you're listening to me speak right now, I want you to experience this for your firsthand self. Trim that junk of yours. Go to manscaped.com and get 20% off and free shipping using the promo code EMPIRE. Yes, 20% off and free shipping. Once again, manscaped.com. Use that promo code EMPIRE. Wow. I don't know if uh, if I could have said it any better, but, uh, you know, manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. I mean, they've gone to every link there is to go to to make sure you can make the length the way you want it to be, man. Absolutely. And of course, this has been a great trip down memory lane. This has been taking you to school with Dr. Tom Pritchard, and we will see you next week, folks. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.